Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast. We made it to episode 20, Everybody's Playing Wolverine Edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, senior editor at the Dissolve. This week, Disney's Maleficent and a host of other quote-unquote brand deposit movies have us talking to a special guest, Mousterpiece Cinema's Josh Spiegel, about the latest phase of Disney's long history of mining the past to sell it in the present. Memorial Day has us memorializing some of our favorite war films and considering what characterizes the war films worth fighting for. Our game of the week, X-X-Men, explores some of the many versions of X-Men movies that ever happened. And then we wrap with an unusually pandering edition of 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. Last year, Walt Disney Studios chairman Alan Horn said that Disney's new goal is to produce three tentpole movies a year, focusing on what he calls brand deposit movies, a term borrowed from Steve Jobs talking about Apple. The idea is that movies like Saving Mr. Banks, Alice in Wonderland, and the studio's upcoming Maleficent aren't just meant to make money for Disney, they're meant to give viewers positive feelings about Disney's legacy and about the company as a whole. No one in our business really likes to hear people talking about movies as products or brands rather than as stories or art, but Disney has always been profoundly aware of and protective of its image, so it's no real surprise that this has continued into the brand-conscious present. I'm here with Genevieve Kosky. Hi, Genevieve. Hello. Uh, to talk about the current state of the mouse. And joining us is a special guest, sound on site film editor and Disney file Josh Spiegel of the Mousterpiece Cinema Podcast. Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Josh. Thanks for having me. Certainly. So let's start with this. What what do you guys think about the whole branded deposit idea? Like, are, are these films actually boosting your feelings about, about the Disney brand? Uh, I would say yes and no, because when I was watching Saving Mr. Banks, for example, the primary thought I had throughout was, man, I really wish I was watching Mary Poppins right now. I went out and watched Mary Poppins immediately afterward. <laughs> I, I went out and watched it once I was able to get a hold of it. It, it took about uh, two weeks for Netflix to get it to me. But yeah, there was definitely that feeling of it's been too long. Exactly. But the problem was that thought came at the expense of Saving Mr. Banks, which I didn't think was a very good movie. And I just, uh, I kept thinking, you know, it's interesting to watch B.J. Novak and Jason Schwartzman sing these songs, but I think I like Julie Andrews' version of, you know, (laughs) Spoonful of Sugar a little bit more. And I think that kind of extends to even the Alice in Wonderland example. I haven't seen Maleficent yet, but I'm certainly a fan, relatively speaking, of Sleeping Sleeping Beauty, rather. But I, I think of the 2010 Alice in Wonderland, and all I think of is Johnny Depp doing the Futter Whacking, which <laughs> just hate it wholeheartedly. And I don't love the, the animated version, but there's nothing in that movie like the Futter Whacking. So I guess on one hand, these movies do remind me how much I love the older Disney back when they weren't relying on their brand to boost their profile. But on the other hand, I'm not really a fan of how they're reminding me about the past. The thing is, though, I, I mean, as I say, Disney's always been very brand conscious. I mean, I think of the original Alice in Wonderland or the original Sleeping Beauty um, as more innocent in a way, less uh, you know conscious of demographic, less less pandering to every aspect of the audience. But that's probably because when I saw those movies, I was a kid and I wasn't nearly as aware of like the marketing surrounding them. Uh, Walt Disney himself was always very very conscious of the image that he was putting forth and what he sure. was selling as a product. Are these movies any, really any different, or do we just interpret them differently because we know? like less about what went into them. Well, I think it's the term brand deposit that is uh, the, the sticking point here, because as, as you allude to, it's nothing Disney hasn't been doing for decades and decades. I mean, what are Disneyland and Disney World, if not brand deposits? There's something to, you know, give you affection and give you a, a positive uh, interpretation of the brand. But, you know, as you say, Walt Disney, you know, was very brand conscious, but he he was a very shrewd businessman who was able to kind of keep it all under the banner of the illusion of uh, Disney magic. You know, like it, Disney magic just sounds a lot better than brand deposit. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying. But it really boils down to the same thing, which is brand loyalty. So um, I think affixing that term to what is seen as a creative art form and not a business is what rankles. So the mistake is just getting up and admitting it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Walt Disney would never use the term brand deposit. I, I don't think. Well, maybe not. In the, maybe not in public. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that being on a TV show back in the fifties. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful world of Walt Disney's brand and deposit TV show. You know, I think the one difference that I see, even thinking about Disneyland and Walt Disney World, which are certainly about brand loyalty, I think the difference is back in the early days of those theme parks, as with the early days 
of the films that Walt Disney was making, it was about creating something that felt consciously new, whereas I think these are all very self-aware in a way right. that, like, I don't know. I, I think of the the theme parks, and so much of the theme parks now are either based on movies or they have to do with the the various characters that have been around for fifty years. You know, Pixar has it feels like they have handfuls of attractions at every one of these parks, and it just it all feels like a response to what's been created in the past. Whereas back in the early days it felt less like a response to what they had done before, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and it, it goes back the other way, because now Disney is making movies based on their ride, uh, on Disney World and Disneyland's rides. None very successful thus far. Well, well Pirates, Pirates of the, of the Caribbean, Caribbean, of course. What am I thinking? I was thinking of the Country Bears. <laughs> or, or the Haunted Mansion, the, origi- the, the yeah. version with Eddie Murphy. Although I know Guillermo del Toro has said he wants to do his own version of the Haunted Mansion. So. Hmm. Well, I'd watch that. Well, here's the thing. Do these Does this whole brand deposit movie uh, idea mean essentially it's a win-win for Disney? I mean, how much do they care if you go see Saving Mr. Banks and don't really like that movie, but then you go out and rewatch uh, Mary Poppins? How much do they care if you hate The Haunted Mansion, but it makes you think of your childhood in Disney World and you go back to Disney World? Are, aren't they basically setting up a situation? If you're spending money, then they're not, they're not unhappy at all, I'm sure, because... I mean, again, I hate the 2010 Alice in Wonderland. They're making a sequel because it made a billion dollars worldwide. So even if that movie has even some detractors, it made a lot of money. So from a financial standpoint, I totally get why they're doing this, because it just keeps things going for them. Not creatively, just financially. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just kind of, I think, a reflection of where we are in terms of storytelling right now, where the biggest things in movies are franchises and comic book movies, which are basically dependent on establishing these big universes and mythologies. You know, like, you know, we talked about Alice in Wonderland, which is basically just kind of a live action retelling of the of the uh, animated one. But Maleficent is basically, it, it's like a one shot in comic books or something like it's a, you know, it's a whole story based around this other character. It's expanding the universe. Although the weird it. thing is, it's 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 like it's a franchise installment for Wicked. Yeah, like it's trying to make a, a sort of a second story out of that idea of taking the uh, you know powerful witchy villain and giving her a sympathetic backstory. I we haven't seen Maleficent yet either, as we're having this conversation. Um, it hasn't screened for critics yet, but uh, just from all of the uh, the trailers and the ancillary material. It really does look like <laughs> this, is, this is Disney's Wicked. Yeah, although, you know, it's funny. I was watching Sleeping Beauty a few months ago for the podcast that I do, and I, uh, I was watching it and thinking about this new movie and thinking, okay, let me watch this film and see the actions that Maleficent performs and try to imagine how they could skew them in this new movie to make them seem positive. It just, I don't know, that, that's, that movie by itself, I, I wonder if the Wicked route can actually work. Because, the, you know, the musical Wicked does a really interesting job of subverting expectations regarding the Wicked Witch of the West. Whereas here, Maleficent really is a terrible character in Sleeping Beauty. You know, she curses a baby because she wasn't invited to a party. I'm, I'm <laughs> reducing, it, reducing it a little bit, but that's essentially what happens. And then she turns into a fire-breathing dragon at the end. And I don't know, I, I wonder how they can thread that needle, make her not feel still really evil. You know? Well, I mean, I sort of had the same issue with Wicked, both the book and the play. I think there's a, a degree to which they have to kind of warp that character to make the backstory work. And then even even then, like even with literally hours of sort of justification and uh, character elaboration built up, the stuff that she actually does, the stuff that's familiar from the original Wizard of Oz, doesn't really make all that much sense with her character. But uh, rather than judging a movie that we haven't seen yet, it's, it's really <laughs> it's deeply so tempting as it is. Oh, that's true. It's it's much less complicated. And really, haven't we sort of seen it? <laughs> we've seen Sleeping true. Beauty. That's true. We, we may feel like we've already been there. I'm just, uh, this idea of Disney sort of endlessly mining its own past and, and mining its own sense of nostalgia, mining people's goodwill for, for things that have come before, it all seems to tie into kind of the self reflexive place that culture has gotten to these days where referencing something that you're familiar with is a lot more powerful than creating something new uh just appealing to people's sense of getting the joke or being in on the story or appealing to their fandom something that they loved especially when they were children is more important and believed to be more powerful than uh, creating new memories (laughs) when do we run out of past 
<laughs> uh, I'm not sure, but I hope we're coming up soon because I really it does feel like a lot of the the films that Disney has made and frankly that have been in pop culture lately are all relying on the adult audience who used to be kids and ate these things up. Like the idea is that you know the adult audience goes to see something like you know Saving Mr. Banks or Alice in Wonderland can introduce their own kids to it that way, and it's and you know that's the same thing with. The, you know, the big budget blockbusters like Transformers or comic book movies or the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's about you as an adult bringing your kid and saying, I was so into this when I was a kid. It's about kind of just keeping things all tied together. And I think that's kind of where Disney is at in terms of appealing to the adult audience who used to be kids and getting them to bring their own family, their own kids to kind of get hooked in. It makes it sound like it's the Matrix, but I'm not trying to make it sound that way <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> I, I kind of think of it more as a an issue of source material. Like, I mean, Disney kind of made its name on fairy tales. Like, that's that's where it all started, and it was it continued to be you know different degrees of successful with those fairy tales over over the years. But you know, that's you know what's the the image of uh, of Disney? It's like Cinderella's castle. You know, it's based in a fairy tale, of which there just aren't that many left. Uh, you know, it took them this long to get to Snow Queen with Frozen, which is barely you know it's, it's it's about as close as the little mermaid is um but so I, I i and this is just kind of me you know theorizing a little bit i kind of feel like this reflexiveness is like kind of disney mining its own material the way it mined fairy tales like it, like disney is the new fairy tales you know and they have all this source material that they have made their own you know, and I see that kind of playing out on um, on television, actually, in Once Upon a Time, which is not technically a Disney production, but it's an ABC production and ABC is owned by Disney. And uh, Once Upon a Time, it makes numerous overt references to specifically the Disney versions of these fairy tale characters that live in this storybook. You know, um, it was just uh, I, I don't actually watch the show anymore. I just like kind of keep up with it on social media. And uh, it was just announced that uh, Elsa from Frozen is now incorporated into the Once Upon a Time universe. So to me, that's just kind of of a reflection of where Disney has become its own source material. I think so. And I mean, if you look at some of the future movies Disney has in the pipeline, they I believe they still have a new Cinderella, a live action Cinderella directed by Kenneth Branagh coming out next year. And they've got the Jungle Book. From John Favreau, that's not a fairy tale specifically, but that is obviously folk tales and stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, you, you, it's them trying to just keep things alive by just reviving like zombies or something. Like they're the undead; they're bringing them back to life. Yeah, and also, uh, I, I don't know where this is, but as of uh, late last year, there was a uh, David Lowry, uh, Eighth and Body Saints director, was going to reinvent Pete's Dragon. Oh my yeah, gosh. It's not, and it's not going to be a musical, which means why are you remaking Pete's Dragon? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's harder and harder to get a musical by in in this day and age, which of course, well, Frozen did make a billion dollars. So. Well, yeah, but uh, Pete's Dragon was always kind of a, a different animal than that. I, it for, just it wasn't for, it did never feel like as overtly a musical to me, I guess. It it felt like a a Disney a Disney movie that had to have uh songs because it was a Disney movie, but the songs never felt all that integrated. Not and a that, fan of Candle on the Water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was mostly a fan of the animated dragon and I wanted the rest of the that movie to be animated I mean dragons are very hot right now so <laughs> how to train your Pete's dragon well the Pixar I mean Josh and I had kind of talked about this uh, beforehand offline but when you look at uh, how Pixar has changed since Disney actually <laughs> finally managed to buy it out it seems like the when you look at the future slate of movies, there are more and more and more sequels coming in. It's less focused on you know creating new things and more create more focused on uh, repeating past successes. And then when you look at the the whole Planes franchise, which isn't even Pixar, you know, it's spinning off of Pixar's Cars, uh, but those films are an, animated not nearly as well by Disney tune. There's that sense that. It, it, Disney's even mining its very, very recent past, mm -hmm. you know, for material. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it. I guess it stands to reason that they would do that with the world of cars. I hope that people can hear the quotation marks as I said, the world <laughs> of cars. Uh, you know, because the first Cars movie, quality aside, that movie is about longing for a past that probably didn't even really exist, this idealized version of how things used to be. And I guess it makes sense that they would then try to keep reminding us of how things used to be with Cars 2 and the upcoming Cars 3 and those awful, awful Planes movies. I think I think the problem is that John Lasseter has maybe gotten so 
divorced from the original idea of what Pixar was. You know, they make they still make I think very good movies. I, I was one of the I think one of the few folks who liked Monsters University a, a great deal last year, and they've got a couple of very interesting original films coming up in 2015, but. All people think of are Finding Dory or a Second Incredibles or a Third Cars because that's really all that dominates the news. It's, you know, Pixar. And, and again, this year, the only Disney animated film of any kind this summer is Planes, Fire and Rescue, which mm-hmm. isn't officially Pixar. <laughs> but yeah, I, I dread seeing that movie, but I know I'm going to have to for the show that I created myself. I am only myself <laughs> to blame for this. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that, that that's not even Pixar, as you said, but everybody thinks it's like Pixar because it looks like it's from Cars. So they are encouraging people to associate those films with Pixar, which is, I think that by itself dilutes the brand. Even if people weren't big fans of Brave or Monsters University, if you took the Cars influence away from Pixar, I think they're, I think the people would appreciate them a little bit more these days. I feel like there's a little bit of a worry that they have gotten so sequel crazy. I think the big problem though is that they're getting Cars crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Cars is, once again, an incredibly profitable brand. Absolutely. As far as watering down the, uh, watering down the brand goes, though, this just the whole, especially the whole Planes franchise and the fact that, you know, it was a $50 million movie that made, I think, $300 million. So they're looking to do more and more of these branches, to do more and more offshoots. And it just it reminds me so much of, you know, 1994 when Return of Jafar came out. And Disney said, wait a minute, there is so much money to be made with direct-to-DVD kind of low-budget, low-key, comparatively uh, rip-offs of our, our own stuff. And they started going back and mining the classics and putting out these like awful pointless sequels and it made a lot of money but it also just sort of lowered the expectation for disney animation lowered the expectation for disney story- storytelling and when lasser came on as a uh, an exec at disney one of the first things he did was axe that entire department and just say we're we're ruining the brand with this stuff we're not going to do it anymore so it bothers me to see it creeping back in and it bothers me even more to see it creeping back in sort of in the name of of expanding the brand and making people like it more and, and then if you think about like that those uh you know direct to dvd sequ- or direct to video sequels that you're talking about you know grew out of the the disney renaissance of the of the 90s whereas this you know kind of a sequel wave is coming out of i guess you would call it like the pixar renaissance it's kind of kind of blurry you know where pixar and disney becomes one but it's kind of the same thing like where you get like this big peak and then uh that peak starts getting mined and hollowed out until it you know until you get back to early 2000s disney it's all a great big cycle well let me ask you guys this i I, you know where we may not be we may be in a minority here um I think much as uh, much as Walt Disney himself realized, you know, especially in the 50s and 60s, there is an endless market for stuff that parents can take their kids to and that they can trust, you know, that they can trust to not have ugly messages or, you know, bad language or bad behavior to model, basically harmless entertainment. But there's so many, uh, Pixar in particular w- made these things accessible to grown-ups, And I think we've gotten a little spoiled and entitled with, you know, wanting our, our kids' entertainment to be fantastic adult entertainment too. So this may not be really what Disney's 100% going for. But just speaking the, like among the three of us, what could Disney do that would, uh, that would put deposits in its brand for you? Like what, what gives Disney value that you want to see more of? I would say taking more chances, which I think here, means relying less on the past and attempting to create something even remotely new as opposed to familiar you know i I think also there is probably somewhere a a happy middle between harmless entertainment and fantastic adult entertainment that is also enjoyed by kids i I think that's just it's case where disney is relying so heavily on its own sub-genre of brand its own sub-brands with marvel and pixar and you've got lucasfilm which is obviously going to presumably, be a huge cash cow for them with Star Wars coming up for the next uh, 100,000 years or however long they're going to be making (laughs) Star Wars movies for. You know, I I would 
you know, a movie I would want them to make more of, a movie, a kind of movie, rather, is The Rocketeer, which is, mm. it's a shame that that movie got ignored in 1991. I think that opened either the same day or a week before or after Terminator 2, which is just mm. the worst timing, obviously. <laughs> and that movie obviously harkens back to the past. It is this idealized version of the late 1930s. You've, you know, it's an Indiana Jones-esque film that also feels like it's got a, a rich and vibrant and and happy spirit that I don't see in a ton of Disney films lately. I think the closest we've come, at least in terms of taking a chance, even though it was based on a pre-existing bit of material, was John Carter, which I know is kind of a punchline for a lot of people now. That movie at least felt like it was something a little more daring than Through the Looking Glass or Alice in Wonderland or Maleficent or any of these. I, I think I would just want them to take chances of some kind they have enough money that they could i'm on record as liking john carter so i i, I you know I, I would have no problem if they you know gave another shot at something like that but yeah my answer is kind of along the same lines first of all like i have such nostalgic affection for disney i came from a disney family it was all i watched growing up like it would take a lot for me to just be like no more disney ever <laughs> uh it'd also be kind of impossible in the current media landscape to swear off everything disney um, but yeah, along the same lines, I would just like to see a, a completely original, successful story. Like if you if you look back over the last like ten years or so, there are very, very, very few attempts to tell an original uh, story that's not either based in you know a true story or an existing property or a previous Disney movie. You know, like or bears, bears. Well, I was going to say the Disney nature thing is actually kind of you know a, an output for originality or an outlet for originality for disney except that it's based on something that disney has been doing for years and years but like the like attempts at like original animated films from disney has been like bolt in mm. mars needs moms neither of which i've seen neither of which i really plan to see but you know bolt is very cute i yeah. mean it's it's very definitely disney's like let's try to do pixar yeah and it's kind of a, a sort of a proto uh pixar aping film in that uh, regard but it, it's fun yeah and it's it's more than harmless it's i would say enjoyable yeah and, and, and i guess i would like to see it rise above it harmless and enjoyable you, sure. you know like when i think of the best Disney, you know, animated films, like the ones that about my childhood, I think of like The Lion King, which, you know, a few Shakespeare and Bible allusions aside is a original story, you know, um, there aren't a lot of those in, in Disney's canon, but when they do them, they can be really, really wonderful. So I guess basically I want another Lion King, <laughs> but not The Lion King too. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm on board with everything that both of you guys just said. I'm going to add that I would like to, to see Disney keep pushing its own envelope in terms of, it just seemed to me that with the animation revolution in particular, there was a sense of self-awareness that crept in where they said, you know, all of our, all of our hair Heroines have been uh, these really bland princesses that need rescuing. Let's do something about that. Let's create Belle, who you know likes books and has opinions and is and is pushy and wants to rescue herself. And you know, let's uh, let's create some heroines who aren't white. Let's create some heroes who are handsome but but you know lunkish, and maybe some heroines who aren't quite as conventionally attractive um, but are still heroes. And on and on and on. It seems like each Disney movie has kind of been a little bit of a corrective for the Disney movies before that. And I would like to see if we're going to be this brand aware, if we're going to be this aware of the past, I'd like to see that process continue. And I mean, it's continued right up to Frozen. Which when uh, you have a heroine at the end, like literally uh, rescuing herself from the villain by slugging him in the face. Like I, that's the kind of self-awareness and, and brand awareness I would like to see more of is just that sense of, you know, things that we've done wrong in the past or that we've done that, you know, have not really been borne out by history. If we're going to keep updating everything, if we're going to keep, you know, pushing into the future, why don't we update the politics, the sexual politics, the gender politics, the uh, emotional politics of all of these stories? And I really think that's how you get to something like Frozen. So I hope that that process is going to continue. Agree. Yeah, definitely. Josh, thank you so much for joining us for this. Where can people find uh, more of your you work? Thank you again for having me on the show. Uh, the best place to find my work would be uh, at soundonsite.org. You can also find Mousterpiece Cinema on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Mousterpiece. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
This weekend marks the celebration of Memorial Day, America's annual holiday dedicated to people who died in the armed forces. We put together a text piece called Specific Streaming, recommending a handful of our favorite war films currently available online for your Memorial Day viewing. But in honor of the holiday, we'd like to get a little more expansive and talk about how war movies have changed over the years to reflect the national attitude towards specific wars and how the way we relate to war in general changes how we relate to cinema on the subject. Here to talk with me about the art of war and the war in art are... Keith Phipps. And Scott Tobias. So, guys, just to start with in brief, like, what's your, your personal take on war movies as a genre? Um, for me, like, I, I went through years where I just avoided anything that I, I knew was a war movie, uh, kind of because I grew up seeing the classics on TV, and so many of those movies either glorified war or uh, concentrated on, like, the long, dragged-out process of war that I was really turned off of the idea in general. And it, it took me quite a long time into my critical career before I started watching war films and understanding that there was a lot more to them. Um, but I still uh, avoid stuff um, if I know that it's going to be heavily focused on war. It's just not one of my favorite talk topics. So I'm curious how you guys relate. I, it's, I guess it's kind of a tough genre to p- pin down in some ways. Uh, just you know, There's many types of films, that, many types of stories you can tell against the background of a war. But I think I know what you mean, though. Where it's kind of like the Western, where if you grew up at a certain time, there's always sort of, there seemed to be a, sort of a generic war movie on at any given, any given moment. Um, and I think it's not really, I, th- I think it's probably an unfair impression of childhood, though, if you sit down and actually watch and there's quite a bit of diversity. And, and even in the, in the films of World War II, even in the World War II films that used to play constantly on UHF. Yeah, I don't really draw any hard lines. I mean, I like war movies. I watch them with my dad, as if we want to go back to our to our childhoods. And I, I don't really ascribe to the any notions like war movies being problematic because they make war movies like uh, you know the, because they make war look like fun or or uh, you know I don't stay away from crime thrillers because they glorify crime or something like that. It's not really you know I'm accepting of war movies as, as grand adventures like like the, the Great Escape or Gunga Din, and I'm accepting of war movies as grim realism. Um, you know, so it can go either way, and I, it's a, it's a very elastic genre. It's obviously there's obviously quite a bit. Uh, of drama and stakes, uh, a lot of potential uh, cinematically, and and uh, I, I don't really get too uh, stuck on the on war movies as a genre. As it uh, sounds like you do. Well, it's that that war movie is adventure thing. I think that I have the most problem with that idea that it's the uh, a, a manly theater where boys become men, and in some way it's all like a, the greatest game kind of thing. That it, whenever I see something like I still have I've never seen Pearl Harbor uh, because <laughs> the trailer for that looked so nauseatingly sentimental and and glorifying the idea of uh, a certain kind of ultra-patriotic uh, heroism in war. It does, but it also goes back to kind of an old tradition, right, of, of just of having a, a sort of a romance uh, set against a war backdrop. I mean, I think that's a pretty old-fashioned idea. It's just not very well executed. That said, uh, and even in... Even in uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, there's there's certainly notes of caution. I mean, which is not a movie I like or defend as a particularly complex statement about war or life or love or even like what movies can do. But um, there's still notes of, of the awfulness of war. And, and to me, I think... Um, I think for the ones that resonate most, you know, strongly with me are, are films that actually, you know, hit that note. That actually uh, that, that refuse to treat it just as a grand adventure. Even something like The Great Escape, as lighthearted as it, as it is, in, in many sections, it does not end well in many ways. Sure, so. there's a certain grimness to it, and there's like there's a lot of acknowledging. I mean, I'm I'm much more down with the war is hell. Uh, message I guess and there I mean there are films from the 40s and 50s that that do that as well as the grand heroism thing but for me the ones that I always enjoy most are sort of the weird outliers like Stalag 17 where I mean pretty much what you said like any story that's kind of using the war as a backdrop or the war as a setup or the war to create drama as opposed to being about like the process of war itself Uh, I just I think that there's a degree to which it uh, advances the stakes in a way that's fundamentally interesting. Well, I, I'm not sure what you, I guess I'm. I guess I'm kind of stuck on this idea of, of the process of war because I, I do kind of like films that are about process. I mean, to give you an example, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Battle of Algiers, uh, which is really uh, you know, which is a movie that that has been shown post 9/11 as an example of how terrorist cells work you know terrorists operate and how counterterrorism works and um and and that film is nothing but um process and and, in these sorts of details um i mean it's about more than that i guess but uh but uh i guess i'm a little stuck on why you object to that 
It's not that I object to that. It's my. It's just not my personal taste. I, I'm not. I'm certainly not saying you know that nobody should make a a battle of Algiers or uh, you know any pretty much anything along that line. Anything that's you know endless sequences of uh, of tanks rolling towards the next encounter or you know people sitting around and talking between uh, between battles and having meaningful moments before uh, you know the the slow roll back into combat. I just personally tend to find that thing a little tedious. Although when you get into stuff like the uh, the modern terrorism movies that are very process oriented um, or things involving suicide bombers that are very process oriented. Uh, I find that a lot more interesting because it, it just seems a lot more relevant to life today. I feel like we're talking in generalities here. I kind of want to turn the tables back on you, Tasha, our host. Uh, what, what war films are the exception for you to this, this sort of broad objection to, to war films? What were the ones that, that actually struck a chord with you or first brought you around and possibly you know, being a little more open to film set against war? Well, I think some of the ones that brought me around were things that I, I had been very actively avoiding uh, because, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 1969. So I grew up sort of in this, the, like sensing the, the malaise around me about Vietnam. Um, me and my father served in the army and there was a lot of like family stress. So all of these Vietnam stories in particular, uh, I avoided growing up because they just seemed like a lot of unpleasantness. And when I first saw Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket and realized that there were some very specific stories being told extremely well, um, that first started to hook me in. But the more I watched movies like uh, Das Boot or uh, Bridge on the River Kwai and just sort of saw how stories were being used, basically anything that focuses on an individual or a very small group of individuals and tells their story, um, I still have a lot more enjoyment than I do that's something that's about, here's the story of what's going on in the Pacific Theater, or here's the story of how the Battle of the Bulge was fought. For me, it's much more interesting um, if it's telling a story about people rather than telling a story about a battle. Does that make more sense? Yeah, I guess I think so. Not, not a fan of The Longest Day. <laughs> no. I'm not a fan of The Longest that Day. That was The Longest Movie. Well, I enjoyed that, The Longest Day. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 uh, that was, I think, I, I think I'm I'm uh, very, uh, Tasha's objections in general are, are, are very specific to me in that film. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, these are specific objections because these are my specific opinions and well, tastes. And that's as one opposed that's... to talking about how films should be made, which is why I'm sort of curious to turn the question back on you. Sure. I mean, what, what more movies, and it doesn't have to be, uh, process movies or battle movies, but like, what more movies stand out for you guys in particular? I, I think the ones that for me, because I'm 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 a I'm a, a sentimentalist at heart, are the ones that actually uh, find these sort of connections between humanity in the midst of war, and 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 uh, something like. Uh, Konichikawa did, did two films about World War II uh, in a row, uh, Fires on the Plain, which is basically the most hellish depiction of, of war you can imagine, and uh, The Burmese Harp, which, which is a, about, you know, even in the midst of this overwhelming destruction about finding some, you know, finding what spark of, of human connection and human humanity remains and, 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 and trying to fan the flames of that spark. Uh, to me, th- those are the ones, I mean, uh, that, that connect to me uh i really like uh i think i probably agree with with keith on this in terms of the ones that really hit home for me uh paths of glory is a favorite uh, that stanley kubrick's uh film uh, i think it's probably his uh you know the, the the theme of dehumanization of man is something is one that he hit pretty hard uh, and pretty often uh but uh, i don't know if he ever did it as effectively as in paths of glory um another film i kind of like to champion because it's not it, it tends to be a bit more polarizing is uh, casualties of casualties of war uh the brian de palma film uh about uh you know uh rape and military culture and misbehavior by by uh, americans during the vietnam war um and sort of the the third the third favorite is uh come and see uh the Mm. the 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 russian film come and see which is uh just an absolutely brutal uh portrait of uh you know occupied uh belarusia so uh um, but those are three that really stand out and for me. One for me, I recommend a Sam Fuller movie and a specific streaming one, his Korean film, war film, The Steel Helmet. But but one for me, I, I I would recommend is the Big Red one, which is inspired by his own experiences in World War II, and it is sort of follows um, one soldier's path through uh, Northern Africa to Italy and, and Europe. So it does sort of like get the whole history of the of the European theater in there. Uh, but it's it is uh, well not not one soldier, but one 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 group of soldiers uh, journey. But it would definitely 
you know, the, the focus is very much on the characters, and, and uh, you know, that's a that's a terrific film. Let me ask you this: Is it? Do you think it's overgeneralizing to say that you can sort of see a flow over the, the decades of how war movies are addressed and handled tonally, based on kind of how the American characters changed and how the American relationship to war has changed? Yeah, I think it also has to do with like what war we're fighting at the time or what war we fought most recently. And, and uh, um, you know, the 80s were filled with Vietnam films that, that were very much about, you know, you get your full metal jacket and platoon that in some ways about the sort of insanity of, of war and the dehumanizing uh, nature of uh, of war. And that gets struck, uh, that, that, that note gets struck. And, and But it's also, you, in the 80s, you kind of had the luxury of doing that because there was not a, uh, there was not a, a war being fought or a war looming. And, and now uh, with the current, you know, current batch of war films, I think you have to, to, to uh, keep in mind that, you know, there are, there, there are things happening presently that, that have to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, but, and oftentimes, I mean, you know, like you said, those Viet- Vietnam war films came quite, quite a bit late right uh, yeah so it's kind of take you know uh, i guess particularly with unpopular wars you have to kind of wait a little while <laughs> until you can tell that story or really reflect on it and find a perspective on it i mean that's in a way kind of why i really another reason why i really like the battle of algiers because that that was still a very raw you know france's sort of misadventures and algeria was still a very um a big issue uh that in that film really uh struck a chord and was provocative and and, and caused uh, you know, some boycotts and, you know, serious public com- conversation that, that I think if the film had been made 10 years later, probably would not have happened or maybe would not have happened with that kind of volume and intensity. Um, but, um, you know, one thing I would say about um, uh, what, the, the one thing that, that war movies of any era have in common is, is that if you, as long as you tell the, tell a story from the soldier's perspective that you don't you can kind of almost dodge the politics of it uh, you know I mean I think a movie like uh, the hurt locker I think is a good a good example of that which is just as good a film that's been made about the Iraq war but at the same time it has not it I don't think it's a it takes any real political stance do you I mean no I, I don't feel there's a strong anti-war pro-war yeah, it's, feeling it's, being it's just about it's just about like let's burrow into what the experience of being a soldier is like which is kind of you know I'm not not to, not to say that the film is lacking in 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 encourage exactly but uh but it definitely isn't really trying to engage with the politics of a war no I, I think in general in in that film in particular is is, is that person is is star is, is scarred and reshaped and 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 kind of broken by his experiences but but uh um but the you know the politics are outside of that yeah and that's a common i mean that that theme of of an individual you know whatever broken by that experience or scarred by experience is, is definitely something that isn't common to to war movies of of any era that's one of the things i thought was most interesting about uh clint eastwood's experience with flags of our fathers and letters from iwo jima was that feeling that the soldier's experience, the experience on the ground kind of transcended politics so much that you could tell more or less the same story from either side and still have it be sympathetic. You know, it's not about good guys and bad guys. It's about people caught up in, you know, terrible situations and trying to survive on both sides. And time helps there, of course, because you couldn't oh, have yeah. told that story in 1945. Certainly. Uh, or not in the same way. Well, yeah, because uh, there were so many films being put out that were propaganda, you know, designed to make people think a certain way about the end me and that was part of the war effort i was actually looking into uh trying to track down what the first war movie was and apparently it was in 1898 just a 92nd clip of uh from the spanish-american war of the spanish flag being taken down and the stars and stripes being put up so i mean that thread of uh the war movie as propaganda if that feels to me like something really specific to the world wars that we just we don't see today we don't really see a lot of like rousing pro-war uh movies today we, we see those uh the marines commercials the play before movies where they're fighting dragons or and waving right. swords around but like the cinematic equivalent of that I, it just you seems know, like it's I'm been a long time actually you know what i'm gonna say that that's all we see <laughs> they just you just don't see it directly you know i would say that that there are so many uh movies particularly sort of blockbuster movies that celebrate m- militarism without actually you know being specific about what what's being celebrated so i, th- I actually i think i think uh you know hollywood is doing a a, a good job, however inadvertently, of sort of pushing people into into the fun of of uh, you know fighting for your country. 
Oh, I mean, I think that's a really interesting idea. Why, why are you giving me? No, no, I, I'm, I'm not. Give me a look. I just disagree. I, you know, I think okay. that your, you know, your Pacific Rims and whatnot, your films that are even Godzilla, uh, you know, Cloverfield, all of these films that are about sort of like military engagement with a fantasy creature are about getting entirely away from the politics of war, and it's you know taking advantage of this the excitement and adventurism or the terror of war and the attempt to survive. But how's that refute? my point because it seems to me that you're you're talking about well maybe we're just talking at very slightly cross purposes Mm -hmm. it seems to me that these movies aren't about uh like encouraging any sort of political stance or uh like belief in war they're just they're taking advantage of something that's always been exciting while trying to divorce itself from from any questionable or problematic uh, instinct in order to reach the broadest possible audience I think you're saying the same things, aren't you? Yeah. Well, maybe we are. Maybe it's <laughs> no. Just- I just, I just think uh, you know. I mean, we're, we're a bunch of bunch of kind of kind of people with a lot of muscles, and you, you know, that with that full with uh, lots of uh, you know fancy uh, military equipment going into some sort of battle, whether it's against a, a monster or some other enemy. I feel like that's you know. I mean, that's it's not it's not directly recruiting people um, the way a piece of propaganda does, but I think it does the same job. Well, I'll, I think I'll take uh, Godzilla or Pacific Rim over uh, Pearl Harbor any day. Maybe that's just me. Uh, yeah, I would too. <laughs> I don't, that's not my position. Is not to, to uh, It's not pro Pearl Harbor. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, we are not, in fact, going to have a huge battle about this uh, topic that is going to stretch out for years and reach into the Pacific Theater. But thanks for talking, guys. Uh, thanks, Tasha. Thank you, Tasha. The X-Men movies are big ensemble pictures with a lot of iconic roles, and several of them have also had long, troubled development periods. So naturally, there's been a lot of drama around casting and producing them over the years with endless rumors and plenty of actual casting and dropouts. With X-Men, Days of Future Past, just hitting theaters, I figured it was a good time to look back at the history of the film franchise in terms of all the versions that never happened. So I'm calling this game X-X-Men, and it's focused on some of the more confirmed versions of the movies that never happened. Here to play X-X-Men are... Keith Phipps, Nathan Rapin, and Matt Singer. Okay, guys, we're going to do scoring a little differently this week. There's no Scott Tobias rule in effect, so there are no penalties for a wrong answer. But we're all we know how superheroes work. You have to make decisions really quickly. So you have 10 seconds to answer these multiple choice questions. And if you fail to answer in that time or you get the answer wrong, the question will pass to the next person who then just has five seconds to answer, presumably picking from fewer choices. Each one of these questions is multiple choice, and there are always four answers. So you'll always be choosing between at least two options. Ready? Yes. Yes. <laughs> No. Uh oh. <laughs> All right. Everybody's going to have to dial back because of Matt. Uh, we'll start with Keith. Keith. In various interviews, famed X Men writer Chris Claremont has described a 1990 meeting where he and Stan Lee went to James Cameron's office to pitch him on producing an X Men movie that would have been directed by Catherine Bigelow. Claremont had his own casting in mind, including Angela Bassett as Storm. Who did he desperately want to play Wolverine? A. Joe Pesci. B. <laughs> Danny DeVito. C, Bob Hoskins, or D, Alec Baldwin? You have 10 seconds. Um, I think, you know, Claremont would want to stay true to the comics. He was someone short, but I don't know if this makes sense to me. I'm just going to say Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin is incorrect. Nathan, you have five seconds. Joe Pesci, Danny DeVito, or Bob Hoskins? I have to say Joe Pesci. You are also incorrect. Matt oh, Singer, five Bob seconds. Hoskins. You are correct, Aww. sir. Bob Hoskins. And here's why. He saw him in Lassiter where he shoves Tom Selleck, and he said, that is the scrappy, pugnacious little guy I want as Wolverine. Wow. That, w- that would have been kind of awesome. I'm just going to say that right here. Bob, Bob Hoskins is, is the man, and that would have been awesome. There is a lot of, wow, that would have been awesome, or wow, that would have been terrifying in this quiz. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. Nathan, over to you. In 1996, 20th Century Fox approached Michael Chabon to write an X-Men script. He gave them back a treatment which was promptly rejected, possibly because his idea consciously left out a key element of the X-Men story. What did he deliberately choose to leave out of his version of X-Men? A, mutant powers, B, villains, (laughs) C, Wolverine, or D, angsty romance? 10 seconds. I am going to say that Mr. Uh, C. No Wolverine in the Michael Shabon movie. That is incorrect. No. Matt, over to you. You have five seconds. Mutant I'm powers. Mutant powers. 
<laughs> you don't even need the recap. You are also incorrect. Keith, we're down to two. Five seconds. Did Michael Shabon leave out the villains or the angsty romance? I would say villains. I think he loves angsty romance. You are correct. He Yay. left out the villains, and here's why. Personally, I am a little weary of megalomaniacs bent on world domination. I think we've all seen enough of them on screen and in Hollywood. That was part of the film treatment that he turned in. Well, this is exciting. We're getting to hear a lot of options. Uh, Matt Singer, over to you. Hugh Jackman was not the first choice for Wolverine in 2000's X-Men. Early on, the studio briefly approached Glenn Danzig for the role. Supposedly, he turned it down because shooting would have interfered with his touring schedule. (laughs) In a recent interview, what did he say about how his version of Wolverine would have differed from Hugh Jackman's? A, he would have been louder. B, he would have been angrier. C, he would have been less angsty. D, he would have been less gay. (laughs) Ten seconds. (laughs) Uh, what was the the second option again? Less uh, would have been louder. Would have been angrier. Would have been less angsty. Would have been less gay. I'm gonna say less angry. You are incorrect, Keith. Over to you. Louder, less angsty, less gay. I, I think this mostly exists in Glendantec's head. And I believe he said D. <laughs> You are correct. He would have been less gay. There is no explanation whatsoever for what he meant by that, since Wolverine in the movies doesn't really seem to kiss many other men. The correct answer is shorter. (laughs) And possibly slightly longer hair. Actually, I've never believed that story about Glenn Danzig, but, uh, well... You know, there's. Uh, I tried to stick with stuff uh, for this quiz that's been confirmed via interviews. Uh-huh. There's, th- there's an endless list of so and so. Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for Colossus and whatnot. But I tried to stick with stuff that was actually at least brought up with the actors themselves in interviews, confirming that it happened in somebody's mind besides <laughs> Randy Joe Internet. However, no promises. Well, let's let him have it. What else does he have at this point? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keith, back to you. 20th Century Fox reps reportedly wanted Keanu Reeves in the first X-Men movie and pushed very hard for his casting very early in the process. Who did they think he should play? A, Wolverine. B, Cyclops. C, Gambit. D, Iceman. I'd say B, Cyclops. You are incorrect. Nathan, Wolverine, Gambit, or Iceman? I'm going to say Iceman. You are also incorrect, Matt. Oh, I did not think right about anything (laughs) Wolverine or Gambit? I'm going to guess Gambit. (laughs) And we have a clean sweep. No, reportedly, unbelievably, they wanted him for Wolverine. I do not see how that makes sense in anybody's world except the mind of a studio executive looking at Keanu Reeves' 1999 box office. The weird thing there is that uh, he, Reeves has been interviewed about it on a couple different occasions at a couple different places, and he has both said that he turned it down because he didn't think he was right for the role, and that he really wanted the role and thinks he would have made a good Wolverine, but that Hugh Jackman did it better. So uh, I am like the best there is in what I do. <laughs> Dude, I know, I know Dude. powers. I'm just, I'm just now imagining him, his inflection over the word bub. <laughs> oh my god. That is the most horrible thing ever. Okay, no. Wolverine standing there in the corner looking looking dead-eyed and wooden is possibly the worst thing ever. All right, Nathan. Yes. Which screen Jesus was reportedly cast as Cyclops in Brian Singer's X-Men, then forced to drop out because of another film commitment? A, Willem Dafoe. B, Christian Bale. C, Jim Caviezel. D, Jeremy Sisto. I'm going to say Jim Caviezel. You are correct. Oh, first one, yes. first time Feels out. Good. Point for Nathan. Matt, like so many films, X-Men First Class went through a series of iterations before hitting its current form. Which one of these treatments for the film did First Class writer Sheldon Turner actually pitch to the studio? A, X-Men meets X-Files with young Professor X and young Magneto tracking down a series of strange occurrences and finding the mutants who caused them. B, X-Men meets Twilight, focusing on the love triangle between Beast, Raven, and Havoc. C, X-Men meets the Hunger Games, with a new batch of young mutants captured and forced to fight each other. Or D, X-Men meets the Pianist, focusing on Magneto growing up in a concentration camp. (laughs) Before I start the timer, I'll give those to you again in brief. X-Men and X-Files, X-Men and Twilight, X-Men and Hunger Games, X-Men and the Pianist. Ten seconds. I'm going to say X-Men and X-Files. You are incorrect. Keith, Twilight Hunger Games pianist. It kind of is. Parts of the film are kind of X-Men versus X-Files. Anyway, 10 seconds. Five Uh, seconds. I'm going to say B. You are incorrect. Nathan, Hunger Uh, Games pianist. Hunger Games. (laughs) 
<laughs> Once again, it's a clean sweep. No, oh my God. he actually wrote into the treatment itself, this would be X-Men meets the pianist. Oh. Well, it, I knew there was a Magneto movie at some point and planned, so maybe that's maybe the same thing. Uh, you know, he ended up just uh, writing into uh, First Class, the, the opening segments with him in the concentration camp. Sure. But that was supposed to be the primary thrust of the movie oh, in his original version. Well, I did think it was weird that the original title was The Day the Mutant Cried. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was maybe tipping his hand a little bit you much. You didn't there. think it was weird. You thought it was wonderful, <laughs> and we know it. All right, Keith, which screen werewolf did Brian Singer fight to have play Beast in X-Men First Class? David Thewlis from the Harry Potter movies, Taylor Lautner from the Twilight movies, Dave Logano, also from the Harry Potter movies, or Michael Sheen from the Underworld movies? Who's this? Who's C? Who's Dave Logano played, played Fenrir Greyback. All right, I'm going to say him. Yeah, sure, him. All right, you are incorrect. Uh, Nathan, Dave I'm going to say Taylor Lautner. Taylor Lautner is correct. Hey. He is a handsome young man. It seemed improbable. Who looks sort of like a beast. Because nobody wants Taylor Lautner in their movies. <laughs> I know, right? Well, Brian Singer does. Sadly, Brian Singer really, really wanted him and actually put off the casting decision for a while in order to try to get him, but he was busy with so many other movies. <laughs> yeah. just couldn't do it. With as many hit franchises. So you are you are incorrect both in your choice and in your assessment of Taylor, Taylor Lautner's <laughs> film popularity. Okay. He's blowing up. He makes Taylor Kitsch look like Taylor Dan. taylor kitsch strangely also up for uh for playing beast all right nathan yes the first x-men movie famously had its wolverine officially cast long before hugh jackman came on board but the actor involved had to drop out when filming started because of conflict with mission impossible 2 who did hugh jackman replace in the role a doug ray scott a <laughs> I kind of feel like he deserves an extra point for that. That is, however, probably the easiest answer on this quiz. There so uh, he, he gets a point and a quarter. Yes. <laughs> uh, for the record, the other three actors who are all in Mission Impossible 2, and all of whom could have theoretically been cast as Wolverine in very, very different versions of this movie Tom uh, Cruise, Richard Roxburgh, and Dominic Purcell. What about Sandy Newton? I seriously considered putting that in yeah, there, Tom Cruise actually would make a lot of sense uh, as Wolverine because he's, 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 he's very, very short. tiny and filled with rage. Yeah. Tom Cruise <laughs> is one of the many, many people who... And has superpowers been... because of Scientology. <laughs> he <laughs> he's been running. rumored as the Wolverine casting many, many he times. Yeah, himself yeah, yeah. With his mind. <laughs> but I couldn't find any interviews confirming that because he, it's not the kind of thing he talks about. He talks about Scientology. That's right. And how much he loves Katie Holmes. Well, <laughs> how much he used to love Katie Past Holmes. Past tense. All right, Matt. Which actor was not, so far as we know, a serious contender for the role of Magneto before Ian McKellen was cast? A. David Hamblin. B. Kenneth Branagh. C. Terrence Stamp. Or D. Christopher Lee. Who was option A again? David Hamblin. He's, uh, just to let you know, he's the man who played uh, Magneto repeatedly in uh, animated versions. Oh. Well, I'm going to say him. Uh, you're incorrect. Oh. Keith, Kenneth Branagh, uh, Terrence Stamp, or Christopher Lee? Kenneth Branagh. You are correct. Yeah, I don't, way see, too young. I don't see that working. Yeah. I don't either. He's just a uh, British actor of about the right age. Uh, he's yeah. just not a British actor of the right level of seriousness. Uh, he's no his... Taylor Lautner. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Have you seen the abs on Kenneth Branagh lately? All right, Keith. According to the website notstarring.com, three of the following actors were actually offered the following roles and turned them down. Which of these is not actually true? A, Natalie Portman was asked to play Rogue. B, Helen Hunt was asked to play Jean Grey. C, Johnny Depp was asked to play Wolverine. Or D, Vin Diesel was asked to play Sabretooth. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to say, I don't think Johnny Depp was asked to play Wolverine, although apparently everyone was asked to play Wolverine. So, yeah. What was your answer? Johnny Depp. Uh, You're incorrect. All right. I'm going to say Helen Hunt. Uh, you are also incorrect. No! Matt, Natalie Portman is Rogue or Vin Diesel is Sabretooth? I'm going to say Vin Diesel. You are correct. Uh-huh. Vin Diesel, as far as I can tell. Now, uh, the internet is so full of casting rumors. Uh, I, I did not check to see if uh, anybody has ever claimed that Vin Diesel was asked to play Sabretooth, but he's never come up on uh, alternate casting lists. So we have, uh, as we move into the end of the last round, we have Keith with three, Nathan with three in the theoretical quarter, and Matt (laughs) at two. All right, Nathan. Yes. 
X-Men First Class writer-director Matthew Vaughn was originally set to direct the upcoming X-Men Days of Future Past. His original concept was a script where Magneto is responsible for which of these things? A. Causing the Kennedy assassination by using his magnetic powers on the quote-unquote magic bullet. B. Causing the Cuban Missile Crisis by trying to steal weapons from the secret Cuban missile bases. C. Enhancing the Watergate scandal by manipulating Nixon's magnetic tapes to make him say things he never said. Or D, causing the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island while attempting to steal fissionable material. I'm going to say A. You are correct. I was going to go back in and help you out by rereading some of those, but (laughs) no, just straight to the win. All right, so uh, Nathan is now firmly in the lead, yes? All right, (laughs) with (laughs) 4.25 over Keith's three and Matt's two. Uh, Matt, for the catch-up. Which actress, interviewed about why she turned down an X-Men villain role, said she'd feel like half the world would know she was cheating if she got involved in this kind of film, and said she has more pride than that? A. Maggie Chung, rumored as Lady Deathstrike. B. Sarah Michelle Gellar, rumored as Rogue. D. Or sorry, C. Angela Bassett, rumored as Storm. Or D. Summer Glau, rumored as Kitty Pride. I'm going to say C. See, Angela Bassett is not correct. She has been all over casting rumors, but she has personally said that she was never offered that role. Uh, Keith, who has too much pride? Maggie Chung, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Summer Glau. I'm going to say, of those, I think A makes the most sense, and it sounds like something Maggie Chung might say. You are correct. That is, in fact, exactly what she said. Uh, the feel like feels like half the world would know she was cheating is sort of a hint, because she was talking about the, the many, many people in China uh, comprising a significant chunk of the world's population. So uh, that leaves us with Keith and Nathan tied at four. I've got a single question for you guys as a sudden death uh, contender. Matt, you are out of the running. Um, you may go sulk in your tent. Now like, you say uh, sudden death. Do I, does it just whoever answers first? Yes, it is whoever answers first. Shouldn't we bring in bu- the buzzers for this? Do you want to? I think your shouting skills are, right, uh, are right. pretty enabled. You can do it. Yes. All right. Brian Singer reportedly wanted Alan Cumming for Nightcrawler for X2, but Alan Cumming was busy with another project, and a different actor was cast and confirmed in the media. Then Cumming's schedule cleared up, and he was brought into the role. Who was the unlucky booted actor? A. Josh Hartnett. B. Topher Grace. C. Ethan Embry. D. Lee Pace. I'm going to say C. You are correct. All right. That was, that was, was Ethan Embry, was it? Yes, Ethan oh, Embry. Huh, how about that? Yeah, he's uh, he's done interviews about it. There have been uh, a number of pieces confirming his casting. And He's like, I can't hardly wait to play that role. <laughs> yeah, they can't seem to get Alan coming to come back for a movie, oddly enough. They, so. he's, he has also said in interviews that he is ready, willing, and able, he, that he hmm. hates the makeup, but that they just, I mean, they bought him out of uh, the second movie. They thought it would uh, cost too much to do the effects and makeup. Hmm. He's also said that he's uh, dying to play the great Kazoo again. He's also said that he would make a great Wolverine and that he would just move the hell right over. Everybody would make a great Wolverine. That's, that's what <laughs> I, I, said, I would I would love to play Wolverine. It would be a more gay Wolverine. Well, what I didn't tell you guys was that whoever won this week's game gets to be up for the next uh, version of Wolverine when Hugh Jackman finally succumbs to age, <laughs> if that ever happens. So, Nathan, congratulations. Please, please practice your best Bob Hoskins scowl. And uh, I'll see you guys next time for the next round of XXXXXMen. Thank you. (laughs) And now, if you have a minute, you have time for the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we give two people just 30 seconds each to recommend a film or something related to cinema. For added tension, they'll compete for my approval as host, because I'm certainly not going to watch more than one movie in my (laughs) remaining lifetime. First up, Nathan Rabin, I am giving you 30 precious seconds of my time go i'm doing a philip seymour hoffman career view and i've seen a lot of great movies for it and i rediscovered a movie called mary and max and it is a stop motion animated film from australia in which philip seymour hoffman voices an uh asperger uh fellow um in new york uh who forms a friendship with this little girl in australia and it is one of the most remarkable unusual uh animated films i've ever seen it's from the director of harvey crumpet which you might be familiar with and it astonishingly even though it went direct to video in the United States, it's one of seven seconds on imdb <laughs> Genevieve, can you make it? Just a little right. bit over there. Um, all right. I, I think this is what is called playing to the host. You've got a unique project that's also an animated film that I haven't heard of by the director of Harvey Crumpet. 
Scott, are, do you do you have a uh, a pile that, of that? IMDb says the 172nd best film ever made. <laughs> That's what I said at the very end. Scott, do you have a plate of gold bars that you want to slide <laughs> no, across I, the table I, no, before did, beginning your segment? No, just a big big uh, stash of cash. But uh, mm-hmm. all right, let's go. All right, let's hear it. Thirty seconds. Go. I'd like to recommend Camera, a six-minute short film David Cronenberg made for the 25th Toronto International Film Festival. The star of that film, Leslie Carlson, played Barry Convex in Videodrome, and he died earlier this week, which adds some poignancy to a film that's about an actor coming to terms with death. Uh, Camera has uh, Carlson giving a monologue about growing old in front of the camera. Meanwhile, a bunch of children set up a professional uh, shoot around him. It's a really funny short with a sad undercurrent, and it's sadder now that Carlson is gone. And Scott makes it in under time by just about the same uh, proportion that uh, Nathan went over time, which is to say two tenths of a second. <laughs> uh, but I, wow, I, I mean, I, you both, uh, you both kind of hit the same notes here of uh, nostalgia for people that were sad to have lost. Um, and Scott kind of has a little bit of an edge since I said I was not going to watch more than one movie in my life. He's got uh, something that's short and won't take much of my time. But uh, Nathan has just so clearly hit every single one of my interests uh, all in one big batch. Nathan. The victory is yours. Huzzah. And, right. now, and now I'm going to watch Harvey Crumpet because I have not seen it. Well, I'm going to go watch uh, Mary and Max because great. it sounds fantastic. Sounds great. Yes. And thank you guys both so much. Victory but thank you extra hard, Nathan. Thank you. All right. That about does it for episode 20 of the Dissolve podcast. Look for episode 21 two weeks from now. Meanwhile, the Dissolve is available in many flavors on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, or in website form at thedissolve.com. If you have questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest topics or games for the Dissolve podcast, please email us at feedback at thedissolve.com. And in the meantime, your ratings and reviews at the iTunes podcast store help immensely in letting other people know we're out there, so we'd love it if you kept them coming. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky, with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening.